You are listening to the Mary Jane Society Podcast, brought to you by Studio 420, a cannabis-friendly marketing agency. I'm your host, Pam Schmiel, Marketing Director of Studio 420. Today we meet Brian Douglas, a sought-out expert on cannabis cultivation. Before launching Canopy Growth's cultivation program, he spent 15 years as a cultivator of flowers and vegetables. He went on to start his own consulting company, advising others on building and operating cannabis cultivation facilities. We talk about how to get clean quality genetics, costs to build out a cultivation facility, and how to make your grow stand out, and the importance of automating post-harvest production, to name a few. Let's meet Ryan. Hi, Pam. Yeah, nice to meet you. Very nice to meet you. And, and you're up in Maine, right? Uh, half of the year. I'm currently in Florida. So half the year in Maine, half the year in Florida. Um, I'd love to start with uh, background in cannabis cultivation and how you came into it and your experience. Perfect. Sure. So my name is Ryan Douglas. Uh, my company is Ryan Douglas Cultivation. Uh, I'm a cultivation consultant. So what I do is essentially help um, cannabis companies to run more profitable cultivation sites. And so typically that means I'm advising either the owner or the CEO of a licensed cannabis cultivation business. And we work together to ensure the startup is a success, or we work together to help optimize their existing facility to maximize what it is they're already doing. So I spent uh, about the last five years working as an independent consultant, specifically to the cannabis industry. Um, four of those years, I was in Colombia, South America, servicing the cannabis industry down there. Uh, but oh. prior to working as an independent consultant, I uh, was running cultivation for a company called Canopy Growth Corporation in Canada. So they hired me uh, as their first uh, head grower to kind of organize and launch their cultivation program. Um, but before entering cannabis on a commercial scale, I was actually growing uh, flowers and hydroponic vegetables in commercial greenhouses across the U.S. for 15 years. So it's actually my my real background and training is in traditional horticulture. And in retrospect, was probably the best training or education I could have asked for, you know, a decade and a half of hands-on horticulture experience prior to entering the cannabis industry. So I'm a grower at heart. And now I advise companies across the globe on how to really run the most profitable cultivation sites they can. People that I've spoken to claim that Colombia is going to be our biggest um, competitor once the borders open up and in international trade, uh, just as far as the quality of the crop, uh, that the you know quality of the cannabinoids uh, in the plants will be more potent, might be more minor cannabinoids. Is do you think that's the biggest one of the biggest threats that the American um, cultivators will have? I think the the business opportunity in South America is the ability to grow on a large scale at a low cost of production and extract the active ingredient and then export or commercialize that. So I, I really don't see, you know, like container loads of dry cannabis flour moving from Colombia to the US, but I think there's going to be increased demand for the active ingredients. And it's simply an inexpensive place to grow cannabis because the most in most parts of the country, the environment is conducive to cannabis, but also just in terms of economics. I mean, everything in Colombia is 
roughly four to you know a fourth or a fifth the cost of what it is here in the U.S. And so that goes across the board from the cost of inputs to the cost of labor. So uh, I think inside of the U.S., I mean, we're also talking about being able to import and export high THC flour. And so that's going to require massive steps on the part of the government. And so I think, I don't think we're going to be seeing a lot of dry flour coming in the country, but potentially the import of active ingredients that could be that could be some serious competition for U.S. growers. In the form of concentrates, you mean? Like they would be exporting concentrates to the U.S. to formulate different products and things like that? Exactly, exactly. So it's already happening with um, isolate. So that's really kind of the, the most refined form of an extract, which essentially is a white powder, but it's you know 97 or 99% pure CBD. And so since there aren't regulations around the import or export of CBD, that's already happening. So you've got companies in Colombia that are growing essentially hemp on a large scale, extracting the CBD into an isolate, a powder form, and then uh, exporting it, exporting into the U.S. And then, so, I mean, there's CBD coming into the U.S. and exiting the U.S. <clears throat> at the moment. I'm sure there's a lot of people who have never been in the cultivation business, but want to get into the industry. So I'm sure there's a lot of newcomers that you're coming across looking for your expertise. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. So the majority of my clients over the last five years have been startups. And so what I realized is there's actually patterns and kind of predictable mistakes that a lot of groups make. And I actually published a book and the goal of that book called From Seed to Success was to help entrepreneurs that are not from cannabis kind of get an idea of like steps one through 10 of what is involved in launching a successful business. So the goal is trying to help them to avoid these predictable mistakes. So I think probably some of the biggest pain points for entrepreneurs are related to genetics and uh, leadership in terms of the head grower. And so I think a lot of people uh, that aren't from horticulture kind of leave the genetics portion to the last piece. And so what's what's tricky is trying to find a clean source of genetics uh, that you can duplicate quickly and fill up your grow rooms. And so what happens is uh, typically the company will go around and buy a number of different genetics that are kind of hot on the market. They'll buy a couple plants and then propagate or duplicate and build those out. But, you know, nine times out of 10, or usually 10 times out of 10, uh, there's some kind of a pathogen, an insect or um, a virus or mold that's obvious or latent on these plants. And so what happens is you have, and I've seen this, you know, 12, $15 million brand new facilities, state-of-the-art facilities, and they're bringing in these contaminated genetics. And so as they duplicate and propagate and build out their, their stock plants, uh, they're essentially propagating disease. And so the very first crop sometimes are crop failures, or in the very first crop, the grower has kind of two strikes against him or her because they're battling uh, disease or insect infestation on the very first run. So uh, business plans are pretty simple to come by. There's a ton of templates online. And, uh, you know, oftentimes in my experience, regulators aren't savvy enough to recognize if the cultivation strategy is appropriate for the business that that's applying and they just have a, a, a piece of real estate and they kind of use a business template and apply and if they get the license that great that's great but the biggest challenge is actually launching it 
And so genetics are one topic that typically catch entrepreneurs off guard. And the other is finding someone to run the production site. So you can imagine the thinking would be to find someone that has a lot of experience with marijuana, the plant. But what I see often is the case is that entrepreneurs, sometimes these groups don't see the value in hiring an experienced grower, or they think, you know, it's just weed, anybody can grow it. So they'll hire maybe someone that has experience at home um, mm -hmm. and then put them in charge of running a commercial facility. And so even though that person might have uh, a lot of interest and passion and intellectual understanding of the plant, there's a vast difference between growing six plants at home as a caregiver or under kind of adult use regulations and then running you know, a 20,000 square foot facility with employees and production schedules and facility maintenance. And so that learning curve typically is the reason a lot of startups kind of stumble and fumble coming to the finish line. And by finish line, I mean having saleable product that consumers want in a new market. So <clears throat> kind of a, um, a lack of understanding of how long it takes or what's involved in finding clean quality genetics and then hiring an inexperienced grower to run the site are probably the two biggest mistakes that that companies make. And again, it's I've seen those mistakes happen over and over again, regardless of the country or even the culture. So it's a lot of my work is trying to work with these groups early in the strategy phase and kind of create a roadmap for the company to get to market. And then it's just a matter of kind of hitting these benchmarks along the way, but not overcomplicating the process by trying to implement everything that you read about and hear about and talk to people about kind of ironically a lot of my work is helping companies to kind of calm down and focus on what's important at the moment and let everything slide off the table that that isn't critical to getting to the next benchmark and what about how, so how does someone go about getting clean quality genetics and so regardless of what your state you're in the goal should be <clears throat> whether you're acquiring cuttings or you're starting from seed is very early in the process, send those genetics to a tissue culture lab to basically propagate in the tissue culture lab and return these genetics to you. And the reason is because the only way to have certified disease-free plants is to propagate them inside of a tissue culture lab because it's done so under sterile conditions. And so the process of propagating under these conditions kills any kind of pathogen or virus or disease that's on the plant material. And so, so yes, you can get contaminated cuttings by taking a, a clone or a cutting from one of your friend's plants and then propagating it in your own facility. But you can also, there are also seed-borne diseases and viruses. So there's really no 100% safe way of starting. So the idea is you identify a source of genetics that consumers want and then find a way to pass those through a tissue culture lab. Now, some growers actually don't even keep their mom plants or their stock plants on site. They actually outsource their propagation efforts to a tissue culture lab completely. And so they're not messing with any kind of these risks of having an in-house propagation program. They just focus on flowering, which is where the money's at. And so they partner up or they I come to a business arrangement with a tissue culture lab where this lab stores their genetics and on a weekly or bi-weekly basis they're providing them with you know hundreds or thousands of rooted plantlets that arrive disease-free so of course anything can happen during the production process but at least the grower is starting out with something that's completely uh, disease-free so in my opinion that's really the ideal 
the best way to start. Not a lot of tissue culture companies will cater to cannabis growers. And the price point sometimes is considered out of range for other growers. But in the instance where the company can afford it and there's a, um, a propagator that'll service a cannabis company, I think that's really the ideal place to start. And we'll just kind of work backwards from there to what's realistic or affordable, affordable for the company. Mm. So what is, I've heard different costs thrown out there, but if you just had to, if somebody came to you and said, I want to start a cultivation facility, what would you say you need $8 million, $12 million? Like don't, you know, don't even think about starting unless you have so much money. I mean, I know it depends on the size and, you know, probably your location and, you know, all those expenses, but it, it, just if you were thinking about that, where, where would you just kind of ballpark it? Yeah, so anything larger, we can kind of break things down to what would be called like a, a micro license or a craft grower license and then everything else. And so craft growers are typically 500 square feet, 2,000 square feet, maximum 5,000 square feet. Um, but for anything larger than that, you really need initially about $2 million, I think, safely to get through licensing and the property deal and paying or hiring your initial employees or paying for accountants and lawyers and architects. So those things add up when you're looking at a commercial facility. And, you know, I tell clients to expect maybe $400 a square foot um, to build out a cultivation facility. So depending on how big they want to go, that's kind of a safe number and you just multiply up. And if you're working within an existing budget, that tells you how big of a facility you can grow, build or retrofit. Uh, but if you don't have a budget, then that's a good way to establish one because you have an idea of what it costs to build it out. I'm curious when you were um, at Canopy Growth or, or running a facility, what was one of the biggest challenges that you found as, as, as someone who was running a facility? Or, because you were mentioning earlier the mistakes just because you grow at home and you've, you know, you've cultivated and whatever, it's a whole different ball game when you get into running a big facility. So are those two different positions that you would hire someone for? Obviously somebody who has those management skills on that higher level and then get that master grower in there. Maybe, you know, people want to bring in the legacy people. I mean, I would feel like those two worlds would benefit your, your facility. How do you bring those two expertises together? Yeah, you're right. And so a lot of companies hire two separate individuals. So one person maybe that has uh, experience running a commercial scale plant production facility and the people and everything that comes along with that project. And they hire essentially a marijuana expert uh, okay. because they're kind of complementary uh, sets of skills and backgrounds and expertise. Uh, from my experience, so I had... Uh, a decade and a half of experience running these facilities, but I'd also been growing cannabis uh, personally for longer than that. So I guess in my instance, I had built a career out of commercial plant production. So I was familiar with planning and people and facility management and all of that. But on a personal level, I was a consumer and home grower for just as long. So uh, in that sense, I think it worked out well. And, um, you know, mm. I, I was able, when we were launching Canopy, uh, sometimes the tendency is if you don't have exposure to traditional horticulture, what we what growers often do is just simply try to scale up or expand what they're doing at home, and that's logical. But there's oftentimes 
kind of efficiency of scale. So a lot of things that make sense on a small scale at home are inefficient and too expensive on a, on a large scale in the in a commercial uh, plant production facility. So I was lucky enough to have that background from commercial horticulture that a lot of the equipment and the way that the facility was set up at Tweed or Canopy at the time uh, was actually just, I just pulled those ideas from traditional horticulture. So, you know, like uh, rolling um, benches for inside the grow room and infertigation irrigation systems that capture the leachate and treat it and reuse it. So we're, we're not wasting or sending any runoff into the environment. So uh, for me, it worked out really well, but you're right. There's oftentimes a huge distance between uh, facility management and marijuana knowledge. And if you can't hire a grower and teach them kind of the intricacies of marijuana, then oftentimes companies go with having roles for both those individuals in the same company. Mm. Yeah, that's that's one of the topics that I hear in the cultivation world is balancing the legacy, or if you, that's what you're trying to do, bring legacy in and trying to grow on that scale in, in our new world. So I'm, I'm sure you're you're called in a lot to do to advise on cultivation licenses of applications. Um, what are there any like tips or tricks or things that if somebody who's applying for a cultivation license that they, they should focus on like some winning tips to get these that you've seen? Yeah, so I think in the near future, it's going to be important to focus on <clears throat> things like energy conservation and uh, resource use efficiency. And so I think what we'll see is that unjustly, because cannabis is a controlled substance, that our industry is gonna come under kind of uh, hyper-focus in terms of the amount of energy we use to produce the crop and any kind of effluent or discharge or waste sent into the environment as a result of growing the crop. And so when you think about it, when you think about horticulture and agriculture on a large scale, I mean, globally, and even in the U.S., cannabis is a drop in the bucket, right? You've got these massive farms that are growing crops, but essentially depleting the, the wealth of the soil. Uh, but none of that matters because now we're talking about cannabis. And so we're all very much focused on how much water we use and how much fertilizer we use and how much electricity we use. So I think any license application in the next couple of years should should focus on how much maybe not how much electricity they plan to use, but steps they're going to take to minimize their uh, <clears throat> energy consumption and minimize their water consumption and really highlight technology or <clears throat> kind of precision agriculture methods that ensure that they're not going to be providing their crop with anything the plant doesn't need. So no excess fertilizer, no excess water, just exactly what the plant needs it, when it needs it, and nothing more. So kind of in a general sense, I think <clears throat> that's going to be the focus that a lot of regulators will be looking at as we move into the near future. So that maybe might be my my biggest tip for uh, including in your license application to kind of give you an edge, assuming that it's not a lottery. Um, so I, I have to say, I do love the articles that you write for uh, CBE and all the topics that you write on. And um, you wrote an article about uh, taking a holistic approach to your cultivation business can improve your bottom line. Um, which I thought was really, really um, great. Can you just kind of elaborate on what you me meant by that in the article? Yeah, yeah, of course. So I think that the week I wrote that article, uh, someone gave me a call asking if I knew an expert in a certain growing technique because this person had seen on Instagram 
that a producer was boasting they had doubled their yield by using this special cultivation technique. And so kind of the, the motivation for writing that article, uh, as I told this individual, was that uh, it's very seldom that we could make one change and see such a huge improvement. Like doubling yield of a cultivation facility is huge. But it's very rare that making one change is going to do that. More likely, what we want to do is take a holistic look at the entire business and make lots of very small modifications. And I think that's more likely to generate an increase in yield than just reading or worse, seeing a photo on Instagram and then kind of changing your operational model with the hopes of doubling yield. So in that article, what I wrote was, you know, in addition to implementing or experimenting with new growing techniques, you know, make sure that everything else is on point, like your light intensity, like your CO2 levels, uh, the relative humidity of the growing room, the the mixture and the strength of the fertilizer, the oxygen levels in the water. So kind of looking at a handful, it's like it's like any complex problem. Typically, there's not one way to fix it. You know, we approach it five or 10 different ways. And so I think that's typical of a lot of entrepreneurs, again, that aren't from the horticultural world and are now find themselves running or owning a cultivation business. And when you're looking at, at you know, you're looking at the numbers at the end of the month and you, you realize that you need to increase production, the focus typically is to Google online or, you know, go to a cannabis conference. And if there's an idea that the individual pulls away, typically there's a hyper focus on that. And so I think what's more important is maybe, maybe yes, make an adjustment there, but look at the entire picture that's most likely where your opportunity for improvement is going to lie. Yeah, I think I've heard, I'm not a grower. I can barely grow a plant. I kill plants. I mean, I do live in New York City. I don't have a lot of sunlight. I don't really have the opportunity to learn. But it, I've thought I've heard people say, oh, you know, cannabis grows like weeds. It's so easy. But then it doesn't seem so with the whole like pH level and the nit nitrates and the, you know, it just seems so fickle and sensitive to, you know, any outside variables can change everything. Most people that believe that it's pretty easy to grow cannabis because it is a weed either have done so at home in a garden or on a small scale. But like I said before, the the difference is huge between a home garden and a commercial scale facility. So anytime that you create a monoculture, which is you're growing just one plant on a really, really large scale, uh, it's a constant battle against uh, the elements, mother nature, really. Uh, so, so most people that say, and that's the reason coming back to our initial, um, the initial point was that a lot of entrepreneurs not from cannabis kind of hire a head grower as an afterthought because they think it's so easy. And so it might be mm -hmm. easy when you have three plants at home in your summer garden, but when you're looking at a, a 20,000 square foot facility with uh, harvests every two weeks and you've got dozens of employees and you have to pass pretty strict uh, lab testing in order to be able to sell the product, uh, it's, it's a whole different game. If you had to give advice to any cultivators out there, what would you think in you know today's environment with prices crashing and competition and being only confined to your states, especially cost wise? What do, what do you think like if you're advising someone coming to you wanting to start, you might say, hey, stay in this lane. Yeah, so I think the goal should always be 
what is referred to as craft quality cannabis because there's really plenty of mediocre weed out there and you know launching a business where that's the goal really isn't much of a business model so so the goal should be craft quality cannabis and so what that often comes down to you know ironically uh is probably less cultivation in more other factors so if you look at it maybe 80 20 percent you know creating remarkable marijuana i think is probably 20 percent in the cultivation 80 percent of it is selecting the right genetics that consumers want and then treating the product correctly in the post-harvest process to make sure that we kind of safeguard and protect those characteristics in the flower that are so desirable it makes sure that it gets from the grow room to the consumer intact and so i think you know how do companies stand out in the coming years one is to keep a relentless focus on genetics in terms of quality genetics or new genetics uh, but also to focus uh, a lot on the post-harvest and so one analogy i like to make is if you've ever if you ever watched uh if you ever seen a, a marathon runner that collapses a couple hundred yards before the finish line if they're trying to place if it's a competition you know the fact they just ran 26 miles doesn't matter unless they get across the finish line and so oftentimes as growers, we're so focused on the cultivation. And then once harvest day comes, we pass that product to, to a different department. And then we go right back to cleaning the grow room and repopulating it. But the destiny, the fate of the quality of that crop is now in the hands of the post-harvest department. And so if it's dried too quickly or treated improperly in those following weeks, it's possible to destroy all those previous months of hard work. So a relentless focus on genetics, but then uh, potentially looking at some of the newer technologies that automate the drying and the curing process. So it's exactly on point. Uh, the product has as much water content as possible without uh, triggering any kind of bacterial growth. And the reason that matters is because we're selling cannabis by weight. So the more water content it has, the more money we're getting per grow room, essentially. But Drying is so subjective to the person that's touching the flower and the curing process is so subjective to the nose that's stuck in that bucket that you really want to find a way to automate that process regardless of which employee, employee is in the post-harvest area. And there's a number of technologies uh, that are coming out that decrease the amount of time it takes to dry or preserve the terpenes and the qualities of the flower better than any other combination of drying and curing together. So I think there's tremendous opportunity for these technologies, uh, but a relentless focus on genetics is critical as well. Yeah, that was my next question is, you know, there's so much focus and I think definitely for the future, you know, consumer interest in the future is the focus on the cannabis, you know, preserving the trichomes and the terpenes. And it, are they preserved? I mean, in, in most facilities or do we just really lose them in that post-production or post-process and then forget it when we go to extractions. I mean, are we, are, is, is, does it really all have to be added in afterwards with botanicals or just terpene oils? I guess that's how they do it, right? Yeah, so wait, are, we, are we losing all that good stuff? So in the, what we'll call the manufacturing process, if you think about creating vape pen cartridges, you know, you can take out terpenes or cannabinoids, you can add those in the lab but when we look at stuff that we can't modify which is the dried flower a lot of what makes up the bouquet and the aroma and the flavor is in the terpenes right inside those 
oily glands on the flower, but a lot of those terpenes are very volatile. And so they'll start to evaporate at temperatures as low as 68 degrees Fahrenheit. And so the mistake I made as a commercial grower is that I actually started drying my crops too warm. And so I, was, I, I would pack up the drying room and I would uh, increase the temperature and decrease the humidity to try to get as much moisture out of that crop over the first few days as possible uh, to avoid the risk of any kind of mold. But what I didn't know at the time was that using these slightly higher temperatures, I was just um, eliminating all of these more volatile compounds. And it wasn't until later in my career that I kept a really uh, uh, tight focus on these parameters on the temperature and the humidity during the course of the dry. And that I really saw for myself the difference because in the grow room, these plants can smell amazing, but if you don't dry them properly, they all kind of start to smell alike or they start to smell like hay. But if it smells amazing in their grow room and then you keep a close, a close eye on the temperature and humidity, then actually those flavors are preserved and other ones are accentuated and highlighted as that flower dries and begins to cure as well. So it's pretty fascinating when it's done right. So what do you what do you think of the um, as, as far as a business perspective, uh, someone who has the opportunity to, to do a seed to sale model? Do you if you were to recommend to someone, I guess, would you make more money as a vertically operated um, business model or just as a strict cultivation business? Well, you probably make more money as a vertically integrated operation, but the risk is that it requires it requires a ton of capital up front and it requires an operator to be an expert at a number of different disciplines immediately. And so if you think to be vertically integrated, you need to build out and run the cultivation facility. You need to build out and run the extraction or manufacturing facility. And then you need to build out and run the retail portion. And so, you know, early on in the cannabis industry, it was very rare to find a person that had or a group that had experience in all of this. And so one, it requires a ton of upfront capital to build out all that stuff. But then immediately you have to be an expert in all of those three things. And if you aren't, then there's kind of a, a bottleneck in the in the right. supply chain there. So I, I don't think it's a problem to focus on your passion or what you're really good at, because it gives you an opportunity to kind of pivot if you're a little bit more lean but if you have uh, gazillions of dollars invested in all these different assets in the market tanks, or there's some kind of a surprise, uh, I think it's you're much more exposed than if you're simply concentrating on one area. And I mean, I concentrate on cultivation because it's my passion. It's what I love, but I don't know anything about extraction and I know even less about retail. I recognize mm -hmm. the importance of both, but I prefer just to focus on cultivation and then kind of create a trusted network of referral partners that are experts in retail or application license writing or extraction. I think that's really the recipe for success. And that way you're not so leveraged if you own everything in the supply chain, you really just focus on your passion and where your talent is. I think it's less risky. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's like those big companies, you know, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago that just seemed to build out and have all these different departments and different expertises and then they basically kind of consolidated and got rid of all those extra things because it's just too burdensome and you're you're spreading out your expertise and yeah it seems 
unwielding. Um, so I guess the last question would be, if you were to put money down on a cultivation business, what model would you use, you know, greenhouse, um, where would you do it, um, especially given the future of federal legalization and borders opening up and, you know, people say that, say, for instance, New York isn't going to have a chance competing against, you know, the Emerald Triangle and you have the Northwest and all that kind of stuff. So if you were doing this, where, what would you do? How big, how small? Yeah, so if, if the company was focused more on the short term, meaning that they were more interested in becoming first movers in new markets, um, you know, the goal there would be probably a, a two or maximum three year business. And so those would typically be indoor facilities. The goal would be to launch really quickly, grab market share, take advantage of the real you know, relatively high prices on the market while your competition kind of stumbles and fumbles and builds capacity. But after two or three years, once competition increases, we find that these markets flatten or decline slightly. And so where would I invest my money if there was a licensee that was looking at a state with a new medical uh, market or a new adult use market, uh, and they had um, they either had the license or a good chance of getting a license, um, that would be an excellent investment opportunity. If they have a track record of coming to market quickly or they have the expertise on the team to do so, there's a good opportunity. But if the goal is more long-term, uh, I would do the opposite. I wouldn't be looking at indoor facilities. I would be looking at greenhouse facilities that are situated in parts of the U.S. that are more conducive to growing cannabis. So just like you said, even short of federal legalization, a lot of people think that we'll see progressive steps in that direction. So safe banking is one of those steps. Uh, allowing interstate commerce could be another. And so once that happens, you're going to have indoor growers all across the U.S. that are going to find it challenging to compete with greenhouse growers situated in the Southwest, where if they have skilled growers and they have the right facility, they can grow really high quality cannabis at a lower cost and then simply ship that to the colder regions of the U.S. And it's going to be very price competitive and quality competitive as well if they do it right. So short term, indoor, come to market really quick. A longer term is going to be greenhouse somewhere kind of in the southwest U.S., and that's going to position the company to be competitive in the much longer term, in my opinion. And in the short term model, do you see somebody coming in and buying um, the, 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 the company afterwards? Is that the is that the exit plan? Because what do you do with your with your land, with your cultivation facility kind of in and out of that market first mover? You know, how is there going to be? Who do you sell that to? Right. So, so I think the the most savvy entrepreneur would have baked the exit plan into the into the plan from the get go. So, yeah. as they see competition increasing, the idea would be to sell the business or the license while it's still at the peak. Because you're right. Once competition does increase, you have a saturated market. Really, the only other the only appropriate buyer for an indoor grow up would be another cannabis grower because you can't grow any other crop indoors uh, profitably. So then you're looking at maybe selling the license or selling the building or selling the equipment secondhand or selling the genetics. So there's a number of different ways to kind of exit, but for that short-term plan, the exit should be kind of in the operator's mind from before the launch. 
And then what about the, the good old South once that kind of starts coming online? I mean, it, it's known for uh, cultivation and agriculture. Um, so just kind of thinking that could be a player you know. Yeah, yeah. I think the south, the southern part of the U.S. has the kind of the most amount of states that have yet to legalize fully. So I think there's tremendous opportunity there. Unfortunately, I think they'll be one of the last states in the U.S. But as of today, 78% of U.S. states allow for cannabis in some form. So I don't think it's a question of if, but when. And I think those southern states will be some of the last to convert. But I think there's too much momentum. We're not going to be going backwards. Uh, you just have some stubborn states that are holding out longer than the rest. Yeah stubborn states and then i'm sorry really one last question is i'm just thinking in new york um you know it's it's predicted to be probably bigger than california as far as sales and revenue and we have you know new york city with all the foreigners coming in so there's going to be uh, a lot of revenue and uh the farmers are going to have to keep up with this do you see any pitfalls just off the top of your head of challenges that the New York farmers will face while they're trying to keep up with the volume, I would say, or, or just in this transition process that they're probably going through right now. I know there's a handful of hemp farmers that have been here for a few years. Um, I don't know if you've even looked at the New York market. I'm just curious if you, what you see going on there. Yeah, so in the New York market, they allowed, um, former hemp growers to apply for conditional licenses to grow high THC cannabis. And so it was uh, up to an acre of, of outdoor land, which when you calculate kind of farm rows, it's more like two acres of production, but an acre of canopy. And so the biggest challenge actually is outside of the control of the growers, which is what the state does in terms of licensing these retail shops and determining the timeline. And so earlier this spring, when I spoke with growers that were contemplating applying for this conditional license, one of the first things I would mention to them was establishing a way where you can dry and cure and preserve, store this product, because you don't know if there's going to be a shortage on testing labs, and you don't know the timeline on the retail. So the growing challenge is the same, uh, pretty much regardless of where you are, there's a lot of different things that could influence the quality of the crop, but having to store your product for an undetermined amount of time is tricky because uh, it's a live product and it degrades. And so yeah. I think to answer your question, the biggest challenge for outdoor growers in New York is finding a way to store and preserve the quality of their product when the timeline for selling it is, is out of their control. Right. And what do you think that is? What is the best? Is the freezing method the best? That's the only one I hear of. That's why I mention it. Yeah. So if it's, if we're talking about smokable flour, uh, you really don't want to freeze it and then thaw it. So you would freeze it if the goal would be extraction at a later date, because at that point, you don't care about the actual fiber of the plant material. You're, you're just freezing the oil. And sometimes it's even easier to extract it once it's been frozen. But in terms of the fresh flour, we just want to do a really slow dry, a slow dry and a slow cure, and then essentially vacuum seal or use nitrogen gas to store it. And so nitrogen gas is common for kind of prepackaged when people grow in white label, because the idea is that the oxygen degrades the flour. So with nitrogen gas, the nitrogen pushes out the oxygen and it just preserves the flour a little bit longer. 
So that's one method. The other is really traditional um, vacuum sealing where you suck as almost all the air out of the bag without crushing the flower. And that, that just extends the shelf life. And as long as this material is stored in the low 60 degrees and the low 60% relative humidity, uh, that's gonna give you really the longest kind of runway for storing product with an undetermined date for sale. Okay, great. Thank you so much. This was great. Outstanding. And for anyone listening that's interested in reaching out, my website is douglascultivation.com. Okay, thanks a lot, Ryan. I really appreciate it.